is Pentecost Sunday. That's what that video is about, which is certainly a significant uh, day for most traditions in the Christian faith, and I would say particularly significant for those who consider themselves to be Pentecostal believers. Um, You've probably figured this out by now, but in case you haven't, just to be clear, this is an Assemblies of God church. Uh, The Assemblies of God is an organized fellowship of autonomous churches whose fundamental doctrines include the belief that the events in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to explore a bit today, were not only necessary for the establishment of the New Testament church, but are ongoing today in their validity and and need for the church to continue to be established throughout the earth today. So the the AG, as we call it, the Assemblies of God, um, is a little bit different from most denominations uh, because our churches are autonomous. So you can go into five different Assemblies of God churches and they will be very different from one another. Uh, But that's the the fundamental doctrines includes Pentecost in the Assemblies of God. The church is still being established today around the world. And as we'll see through this study, the purposes for the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 describes those, to continue operating in and through believers are as valid, I believe, and needed today probably more than any other time or at least as much as any other time in history. Okay? With all of that said, I will tell you that I, I hesitate to call this a Pentecostal church because we are the church. Okay? And I don't know that we are all Pentecostal in our beliefs and more than that in our practice, but without a doubt, your pastor is a Pentecostal believer and this church is very much a part of a, a doctrinally... Pentecostal denomination, okay? And although it's my desire and always has been to see all believers experience the gifts of the Spirit or the charismata, what they're called in the Greek, in their fullness, I would never intentionally alienate anyone who doesn't agree with my interpretation or the Assemblies of God interpretation of the application and use of those gifts of the Spirit, the charismata, in the lives of believers today. Okay, Keith, this is ringing in the monitor, if you can bring it down there. Uh, The truth is, labels, denominational labels, don't matter at all. And I hope you know that. I'm sure that they don't matter to God. Uh, Baptist, Assemblies of God, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, the fact is, I really don't care. Not a bit. Not even a little bit. I just don't care. Okay, We're, We are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God within us. Whether you're a Pentecostal or a cessationist, that's what you call a non-Pentecostal. Uh, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Covenant theologist or a Dispensationalist. Those are all big fancy words for saying we believe things a little differently. White, black, yellow, red, purple, green. I don't care. I do not care, because if you're a believer, we are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God, period. That's a fact. I'm quite unashamed of my Pentecostal tradition, okay? I don't feel any need to apologize for being fully Pentecostal in my beliefs, nor do I think anyone here has any problem with that, by the way. But I've also been around long enough to understand that we come from all walks of life, particularly in this church, many different traditions and backgrounds. And despite those differences, it is not our uncommon experiences that divide us. Rather, it is our common faith in Jesus Christ that unites us. 
Okay? We're all a part of the same body, the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about we're all just going to hold hands and sing peace, love, and happiness, and we're all going to heaven. I'm not talking about postmodernism. Okay? There are false religions. There are other religions, Mormonism. There are other religions, the Muslim faith. I'm not talking about that. Okay? If, if you're a born-again believer, all right, you ascribe to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a follower of Christ. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? And just to put an exclamation on the point, on the fact that it's okay for us to be different as Christians and, and unified at the same time. Still able to achieve the same goals. I want to share some research about the church that I stumbled on the other day. It's fascinating. This is a report that points out some of the main differences between many of the mainline Christian denominations and even really some other religions. Okay? In this study, the same question was asked to each group and an answer was recorded. So I'm going to read some of the results from that research to you now. Number one, how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, one, since his or her hands are in the air anyway. <laughs> Number two, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, none. God is predestined when the lights will be on. <laughs> Number three, how many neo-evangelicals does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, no one knows. They can't tell the difference between the light and the darkness. Number four, how many TV evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, one, but for the message of light to continue, you must send in your donation today. Number five, how many liberal Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, at least ten, as they need to hold a debate on whether or not the light bulb exists. Even if then they can agree upon the existence of the light bulb, they still may not change it to keep from alienating those who might use other forms of light. Number six, how many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, none. They use candles. <laughs> Number seven, how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, ten. One to call the electrician and nine to say how much they like the old one better. Number eight, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, at least fifteen. One to change the bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. <laughs> Number nine, how many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, six, one woman to replace the bulb while five men review church lighting policy. Number ten, how many United Church of Christ members does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, eleven, one to change the light bulb and ten more to organize a covered dish supper that will follow the changing of the bulb service. Number 11, how many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, none. Lutherans don't believe in change. <laughs> Number 12, how many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, what's a light bulb? <laughs> Number 13, how many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, five. One man to change the bulb and four wives to tell him how to do it. Number 14, how many United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, we choose not to make a statement either in favor or of or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that a light bulb works for you, that is fine. 15, and finally, how many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, five, one to change the bulb and four to bind the spirit of darkness in the room. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the research. I've probably offended everyone in the room at this point. 
The truth is, church is different everywhere you go. Affected by culture, geography, economy, ethnocentricity. The church is very diverse. But the Word of God is the same. Okay, the Spirit of God also doesn't change. And it's those two factors that unite us despite our differences. I've said many times, and I still believe today, that there are only two things that truly change a man or woman from the inside out eternally. The truth of God's Word and His manifest presence. Okay? So despite our differences, even over time, distance, race, background, we can enjoy a commonality between us in the Spirit and in the Word. This is how we're able to identify with people in Scripture that lived thousands of years ago. There's a commonality in the Word and in the Spirit. Okay? So what defines us as Christians is what we have in common, not what we disagree on. Would you just write that down? If you want to get a little tattoo, that's okay. What defines us as Christians is what we have in common, not what we disagree on. Yet so often we attempt to define ourselves by our differences. That's where our denominations come from. They come from the differences between us and the desire we have to gather with like-minded people. And it's okay. It's okay to an extent. Okay, But in my opinion, we should spend far more time focused on what unites us and far less time on what divides us. All right? The world needs to see that. The world needs to see the church united. And so I've said all of this to hopefully set your mind at ease because this subject of Pentecost is one that has been at the epicenter of so much division in the church when it shouldn't divide us at all. It should cause us to come together and prayerfully seek the truth about spirit baptism and the bestowal and use of the charismatic gifts. And after all of that, after all of this today, if we still disagree, you're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that. You're still my friends. You're my family, in fact. And I love you, okay? So, so don't be stressed. Let's wade into Scripture together today and see what we can glean from, uh, from the book of Acts, okay? And other books about this wonderful and wonderfully important subject, all right? And by the end of this study of Acts 2, my desire for us is really to answer one question. What is the point of Pentecost? Because we've made it about all sorts of things. Pentecostals have made it about all sorts of things that it really isn't about. We've made too big of a deal about some of this, to be quite honest. What is the point of Pentecost? That's where we're going to end up. So let's turn to the Acts of the Apostles, the the book of Acts, chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start on verse 1. And while we turn there, I'm just going to give you some background about Pentecost, okay? The word Pentecost means 50th or 50 days, as it is celebrated seven weeks or 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, after Easter Sunday. In the Hebrew culture, Pentecost was called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks or Festival of Weeks, commanded by God in Deuteronomy 16, 9, and 10. That was celebrated 50 days after Passover, and it was originally instituted to commemorate the giving of the Torah to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Okay? It was one of the three harvest festivals, and it was an extremely significant celebration for the nation of Israel. But today, at least in our tradition, we recognize Pentecost as a commemoration of the events in Acts chapter 2, which spawned the birth of the New Testament church. But what was the point of it all? What Was that it? Was it simply 
for the purpose of helping those early Christians get the New Testament church started? Was it, was it just an initial testimony to those in Jerusalem that day of the power of God? Or is there a continuing purpose for Pentecost today? And that's what we're going to see if we can answer, okay? So here in Acts 2, we have 120 followers of Christ waiting together for the promise of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had instructed them. In Acts 1-4, just before he ascended to heaven, and we've gone through this if you've been here a while. Back in October, we went through this teaching and we talked about all of the mainline sort of arguments for and against the use of the charismatic gifts today. We don't have time to go back through that again. If after all of this you're interested in that, I've actually done research at master's degree level research on this subject, on the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. If you're interested, I'll send you my paper. It just has a lot. It has both sides presented there. It's interesting uh, read. Okay. Um, So here we are. Jesus tells the, the disciples to gather together and wait for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. He said that John baptized with water, but his disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's where we get the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit from. Okay, And then Jesus ascended to heaven, and his ministry on earth as a man was over at this point. And a new day for his followers, and, and really for the rest of the world, was beginning. So let's read Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now... We'll pause there for a moment because it's worth noting that they were all together, as Jesus had told them to be. Generally speaking, when we see the Holy Spirit descend upon someone in power or work mightily through someone in Scripture, it's when the believers are together and they're either seeking Him together or they're praying for each other. Occasionally, we see the Spirit move uh, in one of His disciples when He's preaching, when they're preaching, but rarely do we see a powerful work of the Spirit happen when someone is alone. That's not to say that God cannot work powerfully in you when you're alone. He can, and He does. He does do that. I'm simply saying, and there are examples in Scripture, but I'm saying that we shouldn't discount the work of the Spirit of God in our lives when we're together. Okay? We tend to be very private people in our society in in a lot of ways, and we're hesitant to seek anything from God that might make us feel uncomfortable, particularly when we're around other people. But the fact is, it can be very powerful when we seek God with other believers, and that is often when the greatest works of the Holy Spirit occur. Okay, so don't be afraid or embarrassed to pray for others or with others when we're together. Okay, and don't shy away from allowing others to pray for you. This is, this is how we're supposed to function as the church. It's a community, a family of faith. We are the body of Christ, and so it is that the Holy Spirit responds so often when we're together, okay, when we're seeking Him together and praying for each other. Let's continue. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay? So again, when Pentecostals talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, this is where that phrase is coming from in verse 4, among other places in Scripture. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Acts 1.5 and 1.8 earlier. But it in no way meant that the Holy Spirit was inactive prior to this event. Okay? In fact, we see... The Holy Spirit very active in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And then all throughout the Bible, even uh, up through Acts 2 and beyond. 
All right, but Acts 2 was the beginning of a new age for the believer, the sealing of the new covenant. So it was a different kind of work by the Spirit, but by no means was this his first appearance. And it was a distinctly supernatural event. We can't reason this away through some kind of intellectual ascent. Many have tried. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Divided tongues of fire appeared to rest on them. They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in other tongues. And to be clear, these were the tongues, were other known languages, as we'll see in a moment. Okay? It wasn't just babble. These were known languages. But the point to take note of here is that what was taking place was supernatural. This wasn't something that happened every year at the Feast of Weeks. Right? It wasn't a natural event. The Holy Spirit descended supernaturally, entered the lives of these disciples and dwelt within them, empowering them to do incredible works, which again we'll see later. And the evidence of this supernatural event to those who were not receiving the Holy Spirit at that moment was that these followers of Christ were speaking in other languages. They were speaking in tongues. Tongues seems to uh, get a bad rap these days. It's a provocative subject, I agree, in and out of church. But we make, again, we make more of it than we should. Speaking in tongues supernaturally testifies as a sign to unbelievers that what God is doing is real. And as we'll see in just a moment, the act of speaking in tongues also edifies the believer and God himself. Okay, It's a form of worship and it communicates as a testimony to unbelievers, which is why it's so important that we don't abuse any of the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly the spoken gifts, things like tongues and prophecy. Because once we make a caricature of what God intended to be a holy witness to unbelievers, you know what I'm saying? Once we abuse the gifts of the Spirit, we discredit our entire testimony in the eyes of unbelievers. You know, Paul talks all about this in 1 Corinthians. It's why godly character is so important. In fact, I'm convinced that God is far more concerned with godly character in our lives than He is the gifts of the Spirit. Okay? It's critical to our testimony that we develop godly character in our lives if we're going to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Because if we're prophesying and speaking in tongues and praying for healing and working miracles and on and on, and our lives are morally debased, we run the risk of making a mockery of what God intended to be holy. Okay? And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that many... Many have done that already, right? In many instances, Pentecostals, we've earned a bad reputation because we'll have great displays of, of the gifts in our services and then go out in the parking lot after church and exact, uh, act exactly like the rest of the world. Okay? And we destroy our testimony in the process. Right? 1 Corinthians 14 is very, a clear, detailed explanation by Paul on the subject of tongues. I, if you ever want to talk about tongues, I'll talk to you about tongues. Um, it's not as weird or as crazy as many think. Uh, there again, as the Pentecostal church has made it out to be. Wild displays of, of babbling and things that uh, I don't believe were ever really the Spirit of God moving. All right, uh, The gifts are given to people and they operate when needed as God uh, operates through. We don't walk around and touch people and every single person in the hospital is healed. God gives the gift of healing um, as needed, as He wants to do something. He, by the way, the vast majority of miracles in Scripture were done as a sign to unbelievers, not in church with the believers hold up, just blessing each other. 
That was, that's not what the miracles and the signs were for. They were to witness to unbelievers the truth of who God said that he was. You understand? So maybe if we went on the street, we'd see more miracles happening. <laughs> but we don't in church like we want to, but it's a bunch of Christians so often. I hope I'm not being too critical. Just I love you guys. You guys are awesome. I'm just telling you, okay, where, where we are with all of this. So follow me here. Um, so... We don't have time to go through all that today, okay? But in chapter, uh, in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 13 as well, Paul lays out the fact that we should all speak in tongues. But not at the expense of godly character. Because of what we're doing, no matter how supernatural it is, if it's not building one another up, if it's not helping the church to grow into health and maturity, then it's all for nothing. And it's actually counterproductive, okay? At some point... We will spend a few weeks here and really do some teaching on the individual gifts of the Spirit because they, they really deserve more explanation than this. But we don't have time for that today. And we're really focusing on the purpose of the events at Pentecost and not so much the operation of the individual gifts right now. Okay? But I will say this, and I've mentioned before, if you feel that you have a prophetic word for this church or if you feel that the Lord is leading you to share something with the body, and, I, and I've seen that happen, I've experienced that in incredible ways. I'm asking you, though, in this church to please come to me at an appropriate time before or after a service and, and share that with me first. Uh, and if you trust me as your pastor, you know that I'm going to pray over that word, okay? And, and I'm going to seek confirmation of that in Scripture. And then at the appropriate time, I'll either share it with the body or I'll have you share it with the body. And, and, and by the way, it helps to write that down at the moment the Lord gives it. If you feel like the Lord's telling you something to share with the church, write it down. The greatest prophecies of all time are written, written down. It's okay to write down something if you feel like the Lord's giving it to you. And that helps keep the message from getting lost or distorted in translation from one person to the next, okay? Uh, this is all part of doing things in order, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Church, church was getting out of control in, Corinthian, in Corinth. And there were these wild displays and there was no order and people were just doing whatever they wanted to do. And he said, hey, wait a minute. It's not that the gifts aren't valid, but there's a, there's a righteous order to this. Okay? So, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit operating within the church. I say we. I mean people from my tradition. Many of you, I'm sure, do. And we also believe that everything should be done in order, in integrity, and in love. And that's why we have each other, by the way. And submit to each other, so that all of this remains in balance, okay? So let's continue in our text. All these followers of Christ are now filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in other tongues. And what happens next? Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout men. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Okay, these were known languages. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergie and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with with new wine. Notice, these weren't heathens, unbelievers. 
mocking the disciples, right? These, these weren't outsiders. Verse 5 says, these were devout men from every nation under heaven. These were good religious church people. And they were wrong. Right? They were mocking what God was doing. You know, that still happens today. Can you bring that back down, Keith? Uh, we don't always understand what God is doing. And if we're not careful, we can write off what we don't understand as invalid. And I'm sorry, it sounds like our children's workers are killing somebody down there. <laughs> really hard to focus. Somebody want to close those doors? That would help. Thanks. I'm looking at you and I realized about three or four minutes ago, you all checked out. No one is any longer listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sorry. We don't always understand what God is doing. And if we're not careful, we can write off what we don't understand as being invalid. Okay? Just because we don't understand it doesn't always mean it isn't God. Okay, verse 11 says, They were telling of the mighty works of God in tongues. In other words, they were edifying God and the others around as they praised Him in tongues. Okay? They were lifting Him up. Okay, so if what is uh, being manifested by the Spirit of God in us, if it is truly a valid work of the Spirit, it will always produce spiritual fruit and will never be in contention with His Word, by the way. God's not schizophrenic. He doesn't... Tell us one thing in his word and then tell us something else, right? It's always in agreement. Okay? Spiritual fruit. If what is happening is really God, it will always point us toward Christ. The problem is that we have traditionally, uh, with the Pentecostal movement, we've seen plenty of manifestations at times. Keith, again, I'm sorry, is ringing up here quite a bit. Uh, we've seen plenty of manifestations at times with almost no real spiritual fruit being produced. If the only outcome of the gifts of the Spirit operating in our lives is that we work up a good sweat and expend a lot of emotional energy in church, we may not actually be experiencing what we think we're experiencing. Okay? Yet if at the end of that, that Pentecostal experience, we see others running toward Christ, repenting of sin abandoning their former life to become followers of Christ, it is then that we know that we're on to something good, something real, something powerful, okay? So what I'm saying is don't necessarily accept everything that happens and don't dismiss everything that you may not understand. We should judge everything by its fruit and its agreement with the Word of God. Again, this is the balance that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, let's continue verse 14 and read uh, to verse 36. Okay, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Okay, So he's going he's gonna to address what people are saying. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Okay, we don't work miracles. God does. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's one of my favorite verses. For David says concerning him, I know the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. I love this part of the story because right in the midst of what probably seemed to be chaos to many, right in the middle of all the tongues and the mighty rushing wind and people questioning and mocking and all the the buzz of the moment, Peter stands up and instead of trying to give a lengthy discourse on tongues or supernatural works he points the people right back to Jesus Christ he takes the focus off of the spiritual gifts and he puts it squarely on the giver of the gifts Okay, he starts telling them about Jesus and in the midst of that in uh, verses 22 and 23 and 36 Peter makes certain to remind them hey by the way you're all a part of this story Okay, that should be a great example for us to follow no matter what we accomplish in this life, no matter what gifts are expressed in church, no matter how awesome an experience may be, we should always point others back to Christ. Because without Him, none of this means anything, right? So we don't, when gifts are expressed, allow the attention to focus on us. We point others to Christ. That's our job. Because without Him, none of this means anything, okay? We should never forget that we're all a part of this great story. We all have a part to play in His sovereign plan. So let's continue with verse 37 now. We'll read to about 41, and we're going to answer the question. Okay, what is the point of Pentecost? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
The message and promise of Pentecost, according to Peter, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Who is that? That's all of us. All of us here today are included in the promise of Acts 2, the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life with Christ, okay? Verses 38 and 39, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for all of us. So what's the point of it all? What's the point of Pentecost? Remember, we said to judge every work by its fruit. What was the fruit of Pentecost in Acts 2? It's in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I can't wait to preach a sermon like that. 3,000 souls. The point of Pentecost is to empower us to carry out the work that God has set before us, namely the reaching of lost souls. Being Pentecostal simply means that we use every ounce of power available to us by the Holy Spirit living inside of us, which you all have if you're a follower of Christ, Okay, to carry out the Great Commission. 3,000 were added in one day in Jerusalem upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those 120 followers. And after Peter preached the truth about what was going on, this is the point of Pentecost. It's empowering us to do the work of the Lord. Jesus said it himself in Acts 1.8. He was telling his disciples what was going to happen and why. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? Why receive power? He goes on to explain. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Okay? If we try to make that statement about receiving power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon them only for those disciples, which many have tried to do at that time, then just go ahead and apply that same theory to the Great Commission and everything else he instructed his disciples to do. Right? Then what? Then everything he taught his disciples was only for them. Of course not. Peter makes it clear later. He says this gift is for all who are far off. Okay? This gift of the Spirit is for all of us. The issue is, in Pentecostal church, that we've made it something that it isn't. So if the point of Pentecost is to empower us by the Holy Spirit to carry out His great commission, and if, if we all have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, by the way, which Acts 2.38 is clear that we do, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, right? There isn't a little Jesus that comes in your heart when you get saved. It's the Holy Spirit. It's His Spirit that dwells inside of you. There isn't more than one Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. So if you've got him in you, he's in you. We've, we've, in my opinion, misinterpreted the scripture, some in the Pentecostal tradition, to say, you, you, you got saved, now you need the Holy Spirit. Well, you already have the Holy Spirit if you're saved. It's, that's what scripture says. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace. Uh, essentially, when we surrender our will to the Lord and say, now... I'm yours. Have all of me. Okay, but he's already there. Okay, understand that. So why don't we see more spiritual gifts operating in our lives today more than we do? I mean, some of you do, I'm sure. I know that some of you do. I don't know about everyone, but largely when I see the church functioning in society today, I'm not seeing the gifts of the Spirit at work as much as I think we should. That's my opinion. 
there are a lot of arguments about whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are still valid today. And again, we've, we've been through that. I want time to hash over that again today. But I believe when Peter said this promise is for all who are far off, the gifts in operation at that moment were a part of that statement. He's saying, hey, this deal here, this is for you and your children and all who are far off. This is to, to give you power to carry out the work. Because believe me, if you're really carrying out the work, you're not going to do it on your own. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability in and of yourself to do what is needed. Okay? I believe that these gifts from God, which, by the way, we see in operation well past Acts 2 in the church, through Jews and Gentiles alike, are very much a part, intended by God to be very much a part of our life today. So why aren't they more common in church? All right? We've seen them in this church, by the way. We've seen gifts of the Spirit exercised in this church. I just we testified the last two weeks about healing, some some amazing healing that has happened as we've prayed for people and and uh, gift of faith, seen on display in amazing ways, provision, all kinds of wonderful things. We've testified several times about that. I believe that is normal in the kingdom of God. I don't think that that, that should be exceptional. You know, for spirit-filled believers, I think that should be the norm when needed, okay? If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And when a situation arises or a circumstance or a need presents itself, we see in Scripture where God would give this measure of strength or grace or wisdom or courage to do what was necessary. And it was by His Holy Spirit in operation from within that the help would come. We see it in Acts 4.8. Peter and John are arrested and dragged off in front of the high priest to give account for their preaching. It says the elders and scribes and rulers and the entire high priestly family is there. Talk about pressure, right? There was no court-appointed lawyer here. All they had to do was say the wrong thing and they're done for. So what did they do? They rely on the Holy Spirit for discernment and courage and wisdom. And Peter was given what he needed when he needed it. Acts 4.8 says, Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and, and then he goes on to preach. We, we, don't, we won't read it. We're running out of time. But he preaches the truth about Christ to all of these rulers and elders and authorities. And then in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And it goes on to explain that Peter and John were released because the priests and rulers couldn't make an argument against them. When confronted with extraordinary circumstances that far exceed our natural abilities, what do we do? In your life, what do you do? You rely on the Holy Spirit. Allow the gifts to operate in your life. We see it happen in the life of Stephen, in Elizabeth, in Zechariah, in Paul. The list goes on in Scripture of people that when confronted with extraordinary and often extraordinarily difficult situations, they relied on the Spirit within them. And the gifts of the Spirit came to help them to overcome and endure and walk through and stay the course and continue the work. This same power, listen to me, this same power is available to every one of us today. Okay? So why don't we exercise those gifts that are available to us? Why don't we take advantage of every tool available to us as Christians as we navigate life, particularly in the difficult parts? Well, there's more than one answer to that. That's a complicated question to answer. But in closing today, I want to just focus for a minute or two on one of them. And I believe it's a big one. All right? I honestly don't think 
that most Christians today truly believe that they have not only the power available to them through the Holy Spirit, but the authority to exercise that power. Okay? We believe in prayer. Of course, we're content to pray about issues and circumstances because it lets us off the hook. It puts all the responsibility on God. Ultimately, it is His, but we can pray about something and say, well, it's His problem now. And then we just wait and, and hope that He responds. It leaves us with nothing to do. It takes us out of the equation. And we hand it off to Him and hope He answers our prayer favorably. And ultimately, it is God that answers prayer. Of course, it is God that heals. It is God that provides, that protects, that teaches, that saves, that delivers, and so on. It is Him. It's all God. But He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who dwells, lives inside of us. And along with that comes a set of gifts described in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places throughout Scripture that we have at our disposal. And furthermore, we have authority to exercise those gifts. But I think that's where we stop short. I don't think we're convinced that we have that authority. So we walk in fear because we don't take authority where we should. But we do have authority. Acts 3, when Peter and John were going up to the temple, a man who was crippled from birth was there at the gate begging for money. Again, Peter wasn't going around just touching everybody. But in that moment... The guy asked Peter and John for money. Peter didn't say, you know what, Would you come on up here guys, let's, um, let's anoint him with oil, let's pray. Lord, if it be your will, please heal this man, provide income for him. We're just gonna, you know, whatever you think, we're just going to hope that, that, that this works out. No. Verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them. Here's the witness. Walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It was a sign to unbelievers. And Peter acted in authority because in that moment the Holy Spirit told him what to do. Okay? James 5 says, we, we call to the elders when you're sick, anoint with oil and pray. I'm not making a mockery of that. We are supposed to do that. Okay? But there are times when we have to take authority. Peter had authority and power available to him, and he knew it. In Matthew 10, 5 through 15, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples, and he says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. Now listen, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if, if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's authority that they walked in. 
In Acts 14, on verse 8, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Okay? We can go on and on and on here, but we don't have time. The point is, God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us in power. And we have authority to exercise that power when it's needed. This is what Pentecost is all about. So let's get on with it. How many of you are facing circumstances that exceed your natural abilities to find a solution or cope or to endure or to overcome? How many of you? Listen, everything that you need if you're a follower of Christ is living inside of you. And so I want to encourage you. In fact, I strongly implore you today to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your own life. That you might be built up, delivered, healed, strengthened, provided for. Trust in the truth of His Word for you today. You have the power of the living God living inside of you. Take authority over the power of the enemy at work if he's coming against you in some circumstance of your life and exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He will give you courage and strength. He will give you wisdom and guidance. He'll give you grace and endurance. And he'll give you power to overcome. Okay, it's time that we recognize just exactly who we are in Christ and what is available to every one of us today. Look, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give, uh, give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or a sword, as it is written, for your sake... We're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's who the Bible says that you are. More than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. You have the living God living inside of you. That, my friends, is power. And it's available to you because he loves you and he lives inside of you. What, what can take us down then? What can defeat us? What circumstance? What dark power? What depth of despair? What uncertainty? What future can take us out of God's plan? What can remove us from His gaze? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you rejoice in that today? Man, 
There's so much power available to us, church, and I, I see glimpses of it happening in this church. People rising up in faith, and we're a young church, and there's, there's been so much good. But man, uh, there's so much that God has planned for us in this city. And it isn't about wild, crazy Pentecostal services. It's about leading people to Christ, winning lost souls. And he gives us the power to do that, okay? And to walk out this in our daily lives. We're going to close this service with communion, okay? Just another five minutes, please. And as we reflect on Jesus, not only what he's done for us, but who he is inside of us right now, we're going to pray together and ask him to fill us with faith. You don't have to raise your hand for this prayer because we're just going to all pray it. Okay? I need it too. Faith and understanding for exactly who He is in us and what is available to us. Power and authority through the Holy Spirit. Because I think that maybe some of us in this church have been hitting a wall in our lives. We have things, we have pressures and circumstances and situations that we just can't seem to get past. And it may just be that you need to take authority over that situation by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then walk in true freedom, okay? So we're going to pray about that together. Let's allow the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, the same Holy Spirit that lives in us today, to work in us to the maximum potential, all right?